Welcome to episode 21 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you, the listener, tell me which of the unwatched movies in my collection I should be watching next. This month, we are taking a look at The Man from Uncle from 2015. Specifically, it was released on August 14th, 2015. And it's one I picked up because the trailers appealed to me. I had vague memories of watching reruns of the original series as a child and remembered enjoying it, and also because it's directed by Guy Ritchie, and I've enjoyed his past work. So Guy Ritchie has 19 director's credits to his name up to this point. The works he did that stand out to me as works I've enjoyed are Snatch, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, and Sherlock Holmes. Those and Sherlock Holmes' A Game of Shadows were the only other Guy Ritchie films I had actually seen up to this point. He also directed some Madonna music videos, as well as Swept Away, and the 2017 King Arthur. Now for the writing credits, Guy Ritchie and Lionel Wigram worked together on the screenplay. They also contributed to the story, along with Jeff Kleeman and David C. Wilson. Now this is a property that Warner Brothers have been shopping around for a while, and it had taken them almost a decade to get it off the ground. At one point, it was even going to be directed by Steven Soderbergh. So given there's ampersands between Jeff Kleeman and David C. Wilson, and another ampersand between Guy Ritchie and Lionel Wigram, but those two groups have the word and between them, the way that works in terms of Hollywood credits, that would mean that Jeff Kleeman and David C. Wilson collaborated on the starting script. And then when Guy Ritchie agreed to direct it, he and Lionel Wigram went through and did their rewrite to turn it into the type of film that they wanted to see. Now, Lionel Wigram has 19 producer credits to his name, including the last four Harry Potter films, the Sherlock Holmes movies, which appear to be where he and Guy Ritchie started collaborating, and more. He's only got four writer credits. There's Sherlock Holmes, The Man from Uncle. King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, and the IMDb does list the Man from Uncle sequel, untitled, no release date, just something that the studio announced before the first one came out. In the previously sign of good faith that would help bolster opening weekend box office sales, I don't know how all that works anymore. It just seems to be kind of taken as a given that that's the plans for almost all such blockbuster movies these days would be to try and turn it into a franchise. Now, when you have something that was successful as a TV series for many years, well, that only makes sense. Now, when I say it was successful as a TV series, The Man from Uncle TV series first premiered in 1964. It ran until 1968 with 104 episodes. And that was created by Sam Rolfe. Now, he also created Have Gun, Will Travel. He wrote an episode of The Twilight Zone called Equality of Mercy. He didn't write the script for that, but he did write the short story it was based on. That's one that guest stars Leonard Nimoy well before Star Trek. He's got about two lines and has Dean Stockwell in a major role. During World War II, kind of seeing the war from both sides and trying to sort of teach a man a lesson about craving violence. Now, he's got a number of credits, and they run right 
to his death in 1993. He passed away on July 10, 1993, at age 69. And in 1993, he wrote an episode of Star Trek, specifically Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Season 1, Episode 11, Vortex, where Odo first gets a clear hint that his people are on the other side of the wormhole. He also wrote for Quantum Leap, for Matlock. He wrote The Vengeance Factor in Star Trek The Next Generation, which was the early episode with the young blonde woman who was not so young and was actually a genetically engineered weapon to kill another bloodline with the touch, plus a lot of other work dating back to 1951 with an episode of Suspense. So a very rich career on that. And the music was composed by Daniel Pemberton, which didn't stand out, but it suited the film. So it didn't strike me as you know, particularly gripping. It didn't strike me as something that's you know, award nomination worthy, but it was always there in the background, supporting the emotional context of the scenes, doing what a score is supposed to do. So very capable, just not outstanding. Now, according to the IMDb, he is best known as composer of this, Steve Jobs, King Arthur, and The Counselor. He's also doing the score on the upcoming Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse that comes out later this year. This is one of John Matheson's 57 cinematography credits. He was actually director of photographer on this one. And again, it's very capable. Now with this, it's kind of hard to see where to draw the line between Matheson's work and Guy Ritchie's work, because Guy Ritchie has a very specific style. If you know Guy Ritchie's work, you can see a movie that you didn't realize was his and recognize it as his in seconds. So it's really working within Guy Ritchie's style. But he does the job well. He's also done a number of genre films, including, to me most notably, Logan, which is, I don't know, I hesitate to call it the best superhero film to date. It's a fantastic film, possibly the best film involving superheroes, but it doesn't quite scratch the superhero itch for me, you know, with the big bombastic action and the good triumph over evil and that sort of thing. But it absolutely deserved its Oscar nomination for writing. Matheson was also the cinematographer on Gladiator, 2015's Pan, and 2004's The Phantom of the Opera. James Herbert was the editor. He's also worked with Guy Ritchie on a few other projects, including Sherlock Holmes, Rock and Rolla, and he edited Edge of Tomorrow, The Losers. So 21 editing credits to his name. And the last end of the production that I really want to point out is Oliver Schulz, the production designer. And this one is a little bit more challenging because the Man from Uncle concept started in a 1964 TV series that's very deeply rooted in the Cold War. Now that the Cold War doesn't really play out, you can either change the concept dramatically, or you can do what they did and just make it a period piece set in 1964. It worked very well, but it also means that the production design, as well as costume design and other elements, have to be done so it still looks like it's 1964. You're not going to have people walking around with iPhones or going around in leisure suits like they're coming home from the disco. So he had his work cut out to him, but it worked out well. He's best known for this, The Man from Uncle, Suicide Squad, and Spider-Man Homecoming. 
He actually has quite the pedigree in the art department as far as superheroes are concerned. He's been working with them since Batman Forever in 1995. So getting into the cast is also a good time to get into the concept. As I said, this is a Cold War film. So what's happening here is that a nuclear scientist has been kidnapped by the other side. He was forced to work with the Nazis. Then he was working with the Americans or the Allies, but has now been kidnapped by the remaining Nazis or the communists, and they're trying to force him to do work for them. So an American agent, Napoleon Solo, and a Russian agent, Ilya Kuryakin, are forced to work together to try and retrieve this technology for the common good. Again, it's the neo-Nazis that have the scientist, but of course it's the midst of the Cold War, so both Solo and Kuryakin need to do what they need to do to make sure that it's their side that gets it. It's a very grudging partnership. Well established, because they definitely start off opposing each other. Now, Napoleon Solo is played by Henry Cavill, who's probably best known these days for playing Superman or Clark Kent and Kal-El. Now, at the time of this recording, it was announced earlier today that he's not in that role anymore. Then his agent has said, no, 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 ignore those rumors. And Warner Brothers had later released a press release saying nothing has changed. So in case you're hearing this a couple days ago and hadn't heard that settled, yeah, he does still officially have the role of Superman. It seems like attempts to have him do a cameo in Shazam just fell through because of scheduling and then were blown out of proportion. He has also been recently cast as Geralt of Rivia in the upcoming Netflix series The Witcher. Now, Army Hammer is Kuryakin. He is best known for playing the twins on the social network, for Oliver and Call Me By Your Name, John Reed or the Lone Ranger in The Lone Ranger, and this in Man from Uncle. He's also known in some circles as the man who had been cast as Bruce Wayne and Batman in George Miller's plan to do the Justice League. But then those plans fell through when Chris Nolan pitched his Batman Begins idea. So Army Hammer has been trying to work his way into movies like this for a while. He also had a recurring role in the second season of Reaper on the CW. And he played this well. So he's got the physical stature for the part. He's got a Russian accent that convinced me, but I'm far from an expert in that one. He seems to have bad luck where he keeps getting cast in prominent roles in movies that are expected to hit huge, but don't quite gel with audiences. See also The Lone Ranger, which is an eligible topic for this podcast. Now, Alicia Vikander is another one from this. She plays Gabby. She's best known for her works in Ex Machina, The Danish Girl Testament of Youth. She is a relative to the scientist who's been kidnapped. So she's the one that can help get them in on the other side and get them connected to it. Uh, now, when I say what she's best known for, that's what the IMDb listings have. For a lot of other people, she's going to be best known as Lara Croft in the rebooted Tomb Raider. Elizabeth Debicki is really the major rival. She's got 22 acting credits to her name. She was Aisha in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and will be reprising that role in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. 
She was in Everest. She was in The Great Gatsby. So she also has no shortage of credits to her name. She's got 22 credits thus far. Now there is Hugh Grant in this. And Hugh Grant, of course, is Hugh Grant, 64 acting credits to his name, including Love Actually, About a Boy, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and Notting Hill. So, you know, he's got the acting credentials, he's British, and he plays his character of Waverly very well in this. The downside is that when this character is introduced, for those who are not familiar with the original TV series, his character could have just been a bit player that had a five-minute scene to explain how Cavill's character Napoleon Solo got a ticket to an event, and that's it. Had it been a less recognizable star, then it would have been quite a shock when he appears later as a British agent and you find out what was really going on earlier. Because it's Hugh Grant, when you see that quick scene, at least I found as an audience member, I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I didn't recognize his name because I'm not that familiar with the source material. I just knew you don't get Hugh Grant for five minutes and not make a bigger deal out of it. There had to be more to his character. Now, the scientist himself is played by Sylvester Groff. So he actually is a German actor with a lot of German credits to his name. 91 credits to be exact, but most of them are not in English. He is best known for Inglorious Bastards, The Man from Uncle, Stalingrad, and Mein Fuhrer. And a lot of his credits are ones that honestly mean nothing to me. If any listeners out there are familiar with German cinema, and want to point out, no, these are the films you should know him from. This is where he really did a knockout job. I'm very open to it. You can email me at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. I'm just not familiar enough with his body of work to pick out what stands out there. And we also have Jared Harris, who played King George in The Crown. He was also in Box Trolls, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, as Moriarty. Mortal Instruments, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. 84 credits to his name, but a lot of those, again, are from the UK, so he's not as well-known in North America. And I also do want to point out, there's a, a, a character or an actor in here called Guy Williams. I looked it up because that was the name of the father on Lost in Space. It is not the same man. This is his sole IMDb credit. And the other notable actor, or at least performer, is David Beckham. Yes, the football player in the countries that, you know, give sports logical names, soccer players to the rest of us. He's the projectionist in here, and he has a couple of other odds and ends credits, but often playing himself or, you know, doing ad spots and that kind of thing, because he is. He is very well known for being an exceptional soccer player, to the point that I think I can name two soccer players in the history of soccer, and he's one of them. So as far as this movie's concerned, I'm a little surprised that it was an August release. August releases have a reputation in the industry as being the movies that aren't that great, not quite strong enough to stand up against the July blockbusters but still strong enough to scratch that summer blockbuster itch. I think this was stronger than that. 
unfortunately, the way it was positioned, both with the release date, with the marketing, it just didn't get the response that people were looking for. I may have had a better response in August than it had in July, because now the early July blockbusters are so completely dominated by Disney, and to a lesser extent Warner Brothers with you know your Pixar's, your superhero films, there's not a lot of room to compete. And that may have worked seriously to its detriment. The total production budget, so not including advertising, just getting the movie made, according to Box Office Mojo, is estimated at $75 million. So when you add in advertising costs, when you add in shares to the stars, to the exhibitors, all of that, to get that two to three times its budget to be considered profitable, we need to be somewhere between 150 and $225 million for the worldwide gross. The total domestic gross was about $45 million. Foreign was $64 million or so. So the total worldwide gross was $109,845,109. So it's production budget plus about 35 to 40%, none of the advertising budget. So as much as I enjoyed this film, as apparently did others, it's got a 7.3 out of 10 on the IMDb. It's got a 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It's 65% fresh with critics on Rotten Tomatoes, including 73% with the audiences. No, it's, it's not a, a, something that blows your doors off, but it is something that was largely enjoyable to those who saw it. And I think it's unfortunate that it didn't make its budget back because I would have been quite happy to see more in this franchise. I'm hoping that home video sales are unusually high so that that still happens, but I'm not holding my breath. It missed that mark by quite a bit. And as far as the critics are concerned, it nominated and was won for a few awards, but not for major award shows. You know, Actor of the Year for Alicia Vikander from the Central Ohio Film Critics Association. You know, and she actually won a lot of those. There's the Golden Trailer Awards for the trailer itself more than the film. And Daniel Pemberton did win the World Soundtrack Awards, or sorry, was nominated for the World Soundtrack Awards as Film Composer of the Year. But that was for a number of films, including Steve Jobs and Mal de Pierre. This is just one on the list. So ultimately, this is a perfectly enjoyable film. If you're inclined to check it out, I would recommend it. You can go in and expect to enjoy it. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's going to blow your doors off. Now for October and our next film, I do want to pick something that's a little Halloween-y. I recently picked up the complete Friday the 13th franchise. I've never seen any of them, so I'm thinking about doing number one of that. I've also never seen Predator, and I consider monster movies Halloween movies, even if it's really more action with maybe some jump scares. I'm not sure. I've only actually seen Predator 2 in that franchise, and that was a while ago. So I am very open to suggestions, and I'm thinking, just talking to people, a lot of people are finding that going through the entire list of films to vote for is giving them just decision paralysis. There's too many options. They don't know which to pick. So I'm going to open this one up by email. Which would you rather see? The original Friday the 13th, or 
the original Predator film, as the topic for October. Please email your preferences to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com and let me know. I'll compile the votes and we'll go with the winner. Thank you for listening.